Welcome to another inspirational message from Northwest Church. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information on what your next step may be, please visit our website at northwestchurch.com.au. Everyone feeling sufficiently bolstered, good about yourself, healthy self-esteem, ready to jump into the words? Excellent. How about we just start by praying and just uh, committing this time to God? Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for every opportunity you give us. We thank you for this opportunity this morning to come together, to worship you corporately, to lean into your word, Lord God. We ask that it'll be your words that speak, that you will speak through me, that you will bring what you want to bring into this space and into this time and into the hearts and minds of everybody who is here. God, have your way. Holy Spirit, you take control. And I just pray that every person that's here today will be open to your prompting, that we will all hear, God, what you want to say today in a unique way that speaks to us and allows us to do something with what you're bringing, Lord God, that will change the way we behave, that will change the life trajectory that we are on, uh, to lead us more into the things of you, Lord God, and and the opportunities and the callings that you have for us, Lord Jesus. And we just ask, Lord God, that you will make us soft in your hands, Lord Jesus, as you mold us this morning and bring your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it is so good to be here with you this morning. Thank you, Pastor Bron and Darren, for this opportunity and inviting me here. I have not been to this part of Australia before, so I'm really excited to be here and uh, enjoy a bit of country hospitality, which is super nice for a girl who's spent most of her life in cities. And even just yesterday, I just couldn't believe how nice people were. We came uh, into the airport and un- unfortunately my luggage did not arrive from Sydney and I was shocked when the, uh, the the staff at the airport were making phone calls going, oh maybe we can get it sent to Armadale and we'll drive and pick it up. And I'm like, wow, that does not happen in a city. They wouldn't even make that offer in a city. So country hospitality is alive and well and it's been really lovely. Thank you. So this morning I'm going to talk to you about um, the concept of wisdom. And you know, one thing that has Uh, been very evident in my experience and in my ministry and I'm coming up to almost 19 years now of working in the missions and development space and uh, you know time in Cambodia, time back in the role I'm in now with ACCI in Australia that sees me travel to quite a number of different countries around the world and one thing that my, my, my ministry and my job has taught me is that we live in a pretty complex world, don't we? The stuff that's going on in our world, in our society can be pretty confronting and it can be very, com- it can be very complex. Um, it can be devastating. You can see, you know, moments that are so heartwarming when you see humanity at, at its best and then the very next instant you see humanity at its worst and it's devastating. And, you know, you don't have to be in a job like mine to come across that. In fact, just opening up your Facebook feed and you do a bit of a scroll down and you are going to see these contrasting, you know, images and emotions of love and hate and fear and hope and and, and joy and pain and and trauma and devastation and amazing, you know, signs of what humanity can do when it's at its best. And this morning what I want to explore with you is what role does our faith play? in navigating the complex and often volatile world that we live in? And where do we as Christians actually draw our sense of security from? And particularly in a society, as we know, in Australia, that is trying its best to push our faith to the sideline and tell us that our Christian ideas and our Christian values and our Christian beliefs are irrelevant to the contemporary society that we live in today. And I think it's really ironic with that in mind that actually some of the most important keys to how we can navigate this complex and volatile world are actually found 
in a book of scripture that was written way before these times, back in the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is, is the book of Proverbs. And in particular, in the chapter of Proverbs 31, which many of you will know uh, most famously is the story of the noble wife. Now, we're going to read a little bit of that passage in a moment, but the woman that's in this story, the noble wife, she is basically the Old Testament version of Martha Stewart. I mean, that woman, she, she just knows how to do everything in the, in the domestic sort of zone that I personally don't have very particularly well-defined skills in. Um, but this scripture goes into a lot of detail about all of her skills and her attributes, and it talks about the honour that is bestowed upon her um, as a result. But we're going to focus in on a particular um, verse, in verse 25, where it says there that she smiles at the future. And that's what I want us to have a look at. But let's start by having a read through the scripture. I think it's going to be up on, on the screen if you don't have a phone or an iPad or an actual physical paper Bible. How novel. In your hands. So we're going to read from verse 10 in Proverbs 31. It says, Who can find a wife of noble character? For her value is far more than rubies. The heart of her husband has confidence in her and he lacks, uh, has no lack of gain. She brings him good and not evil all the days of her life. She obtains wool and flax and she is pleased to work with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also gets up while it is still night and provides food for her household and a portion to her female servants. She considers a field and she buys it from her own income. She plants a vineyard. She begins her work vigorously and she strengthens her arms. She knows that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out in the night. Her hands take hold of the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor and she reaches out her hand to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all of her household, are clothed with scarlet. She makes for herself coverlets. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is well known in the city gates when he sits with the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and honour, and she can smile at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and loving instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. Many daughters have done valiantly, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Now, if I'm honest... I have to say that there's a lot about this woman that I just don't relate to. Um, all the different things that she can do in there. And, you know, there's a lot there that I admire very much. I have a mother who's really good at a lot of that kind of stuff. and It's just not one of the genes she passed on to me. Um, and so, you know, I, I read this story and I admire all those things, but most of them I can't do and most of them I'm not particularly inclined to want to learn. Um, I don't spin wool. I can't weave. I've never made any clothes that are worth wearing. I've actually tried once. didn't go down well. Um, I have not made my own curtains or doona covers or any of those kinds of things. I don't grow food. I do grow herbs. So I've got, you know, a little bit going on there. Um, and probably the part of that story that I'm most envious of is the fact that she has slaves. She has maids, sorry. I wouldn't mind a maid in my house every now and again. Um, but that's about it. Otherwise, I kind of look at that and go, there's not a lot in there that I can really, you know, say, oh, yeah, I've got that under control. I can do those kinds of things. But luckily, we know this is not a literal woman. We know that this is not the story of a literal person that women, we're all expected to emulate. We know it's not scriptural support for a Christian patrimony of any kind. It's not a blueprint for womanhood or motherhood or what it means to be a wife. 
But what's interesting to me is that even though she's a figurative person, the noble woman still isn't praised for the list of exhausting things that she knows how to do. According to verse 30, despite all of those things, what she's actually praised for is the fact that she fears the Lord. And if you look in Proverbs 9.10, it says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So what this is actually saying is that despite all the things she can do, she's praised because she's wise, because she has wisdom. And so to really understand what this passage is trying to teach us, we need to understand it in the context of Proverbs as a whole book. And it's one of the books of wisdom. And it talks a lot about the value of seeking wisdom. See, the noble wife is praised and she's considered noble because of her wisdom, which by definition simply means the knowledge of God applied to your everyday life. Proverbs 31 is actually an account of wisdom applied to a hypothetical woman's life. And not only does it detail the rewards that she reaps in her life because of her wise decisions and her wise actions, verse 25 tells us that she can also smile at the future. And if you think about the significance of verse 25, in most situations, in most instances, a smile, it's a reaction. You see someone you know that you like, you smile in reaction. You hear a funny or endearing story and you smile in reaction. You remember something fondly and you smile in reaction. But the noble woman's smile is not a reaction. It's not about, she's not smiling because she just took stock take of all the amazing things she can do. It says she's smiling at the future. So it isn't a reaction at all. It's actually a disposition towards the future. It's a confidence The noble woman, she can smile at an unknown future and there were probably a lot of complexity and volatility in her society at that time as well. But despite that, she smiled at an unknown future because she had cottoned on to an important truth, that wisdom, the knowledge of God applied to every situation and in every decision that she makes will allow her to reap wisdom's rewards of peace and protection and well-being and human flourishing. She experienced that in her past. That's what that story is. It's an account of what wisdom reaps in our life. And she is confident that the same wisdom that allowed her to flourish in her past will allow her to be confident about her future. So this passage is actually encouraging all of us, men and women, that our confidence in the future comes from basing every decision that we make on the will and the word of God, on wisdom. We can navigate this crazy and often volatile world that we live in that seems to want to push our faith right into a back corner if we actually bring it right into the centre and base every decision that we make on God's wisdom and his ways. Proverbs 9.12 says, if you are wise, you are wise to your own advantage. There was a Columbia research project that was conducted quite a number of years ago now. But what they looked at was decision making in adult populations. And they found that on average, a given adult will make anywhere between 23,000 and 35,000 decisions a day. But out of all of those tens of thousands of decisions, only 70 of those decisions are conscious decisions that involve any form of deliberation. The other tens of thousands of decisions are all subconscious or automatic decision-making, things that take place in our body and, and whatnot. Now, in the Bible, conscious decisions are spoken of as a crossroads. 
And each time you make a conscious decision, you're effectively standing at a crossroad and you are choosing one path over another. Now, in practical terms, the options you might have can be very, very varied. We know that. But all of those options will fall on one or two pathways, the path of wisdom or the path of foolishness. And throughout Proverbs, both wisdom and foolishness are personified as women and they are held up as these opposing characters named Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. And they represent the two competing views on truth that we face every day in our world and in our society, absolute truth and relative truth. Now, absolute truth, which is wisdom, says that truth can only be discovered in God. It is fixed and it is founded on his character, which is just and righteous. And it has a true north that points to his justice and his righteousness in every situation. Relative truth, on the other hand, which is folly or foolishness, says that truth can be created by individuals. It's fluid. It's founded on our emotions. It has no true north because it bends to legitimize human desire. And with every conscious decision that we make in any sphere of our life, wisdom and folly are standing at that crossroads and they are inviting you to choose them. We can see this in Proverbs, in, in, in another chapter in Proverbs 9. It tells us this story of how those two competing worldviews are calling out to us. Those versions of truth are calling out to us. In the story of the two banquets, one that's prepared by Lady Wisdom and one that is prepared by Lady Folly. I'm going to read them to you. Proverbs 9, 1 to 6 says of Lady Wisdom's banquet, Wisdom has built her house. She has carved out its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also arranged her table. She sent out her female servants. She calls out at the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here, she says to those who lack understanding. Come and eat of some of my food and drink some of the wine I have mixed. Abandon your foolish ways so that you may live and proceed in the way of understanding. Proverbs 9.13, speaking of Lady Folly's banquet, says this. The woman called Folly is brash. She is naive and she doesn't know anything. So she sits at the door of her house on a seat in the highest point of the city, calling out to all those who are passing her by in the way, who go straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here, she says, to those who lack understanding. Stolen waters are sweet and food obtained in secret is pleasant. But they don't realise that the dead are in there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. So both Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, they both prepare a banquet and they both extend an open invitation to anyone who's walking past to come in and participate in their banquet. But Wisdom and Folly's invitations are not equal invitations. Wisdom invites you to come in and eat of what she has prepared. Folly invites you to come in and eat of what she has stolen. Wisdom invites you to find understanding. Folly invites you to indulge in illicit pleasure. Wisdom's guests, they find life, they find understanding, they find God's absolute truth. But folly's guests, they find destruction and ultimately they find death. See, every day you and I are bombarded with messages telling us to abandon God's absolute truths and follow relative truth, to live according to how we feel. You know, society is trying to condition us to believe that there are no absolute truths anymore, that everything is relative. And we are constantly hearing things like, do what is right for you. If it feels right, it must be right. 
But these are deceptive messages. In so many situations, that's folly. Calling out at a crossroads, inviting you to come into her banquet. And the subtlety of folly is that she doesn't always try to convince you the wrong is right. Usually what she does is try to convince you that you can indulge in what is wrong without reaping the negative consequences of that behaviour. If you look at what Eve, what happened in the story of, of the Garden of Eden, what the serpent said to Eve, you know, God said to Adam and Eve, there's this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you cannot eat from. And if you do, you will die. And when the serpent came in to deceive Eve, what did he say? He didn't try and say that, you, that Eve misunderstood what God said to be wrong or right. He didn't say that. It said, surely you will not die. It tried to convince Eve that she wouldn't reap the negative consequences of her disobedience. It looked at the consequence. It didn't try to reframe what was wrong or what was right. And that's what folly does. It first traps you by trying to tell you that you will not experience the negative consequences of unwise decisions. It tries to tell you it's okay. You won't get caught. It's only once. Nobody will find out. You won't get addicted. You won't lose control. Nobody's going to get hurt. But then once you're in there... It tries to, to tell you that truth is yours to determine based upon how you feel. See, it feels good, doesn't it? So how could it be wrong? Surely this must be right. Folly seeks to hurt you by deceiving you as to the seriousness of consequences of unwise decisions because it knows that once it gets you to, in to indulge, it can actually harm you and it can create chaos and disorder. See, we need to understand that the consequences of our decisions have a huge impact on our lives, but also on the lives of everybody around us. You know, when bad stuff happens, it's not uncommon to hear Christians say that it was God's will. But you know what? Not everything that happens to us is God's will. Not everything that happens is because God is supernaturally ordaining it. He's not constantly reaching down and manipulating us like pieces on a chessboard. That isn't what happens most of the time. And I'm not saying God can't intervene in supernatural, miraculous ways. Of course he can. And most of us can point to instances in our life where he has. But a day-to-day -day experience is not that. It's not this constant manipulation of events in our lives. Much of what actually happens to us is a result of the interaction between the world that God created and the systems that he embedded to govern the world and to create balance and harmony and the consequences of human decisions, wise or foolish. Because our world is governed by systems that God designed. And he designed those systems to enable the world to function and flourish and to sustain and promote human life and flourishing. Things like seasons and gravity and climate and weather patterns and food chains and resources that have rates of regeneration. They're all the types of systems, gravity, that God actually designed so that the world would function and promote life and sustain life. They demonstrate his general will for people to be able to survive and flourish, and they enable that to happen. But he also embedded in those natural justice, consequences, cause and effect. The Bible calls it sowing and reaping. It's the same thing. And when our free will decisions are out of sync with God's truth and his will, and out of alignment with the natural justice embedded in the world systems that he created, when we abandon absolute truth for relative truth in those instances, we are sowing foolishness and we are reaping chaos and we are reaping damage and we are reaping disharmony in our own lives, but in our world. 
Every choice we make has a consequence, good or bad. We either choose wisdom, which is in harmony with God's will, in harmony with his absolute truth, and will result in positive consequences in our lives and in our world, or we choose folly, which is contrary to God's will and his truth and his ways, and is based on relative truth, and we will reap chaotic results. See, when the noble wife, when she chose wisdom, her whole family flourished, her children, her relationships with her children and her husband were, were great. Her husband had acclaim and status in the community because of her wise decisions. Her family thrived. And what this shows us is that the consequences of our actions, good and bad, they don't just affect us. You know, often in Western societies, we have this deep sense of individualism. We think we can contain ourselves in a little bubble. We can't. Our consequences will affect us, but they'll affect others around us. They'll affect our families. They affect our community. They affect our societies. That ripple is far and wide. And it's true when we choose wisdom, but it's equally true when we choose folly. And what happens is my consequences, they merge with yours and yours and yours and yours. And they become the communities we live in. They become the societies that we live in. And then those societies, well, they affect all of us. They exert a pressure and an influence on all of us. It becomes bigger than us. And so when I choose wisdom, I'm inviting peace and flourishing into my life, into your life, into my community, into our society, into our nation, into our world. But when I choose folly, I'm inviting chaos and disorder and harm into my life, your life, my community, my society, our country and our world. None of us can contain the fallout of our decisions, good or bad, wise or foolish. It will spill out from us and into the lives of other people. And this is where we're often left shattered. When bad things happen to us or happen to people that we love, and I'm not saying that everything that happens is directly your fault or my fault or our fault. It's this interplay of consequences that create these situations. It can be the result of that complex mix or it can be the result of somebody else's direct decision and the consequence of that. But in those crisis moments, we often look to God and we're hurt and we're confused and we blame him. We blame him when we question whether he exists or question whether he loves because of what's just happened. We equally blame him when we dismiss what happens and say, his ways are higher. He's mysterious. It's God's will. God works all things for good. You know, sometimes those things like, sound like nice Christian things to say, but they're actually laying blame at the feet of God for, for bad stuff that's happening in our lives or in our community. And I've been there. I have been that shattered person who was confused and angry at God. Now, nearly two years ago now, our foster son, Bic, who'd been part of our family for 15 years, he died in a horrific accident. And we learnt what it meant to be that shocked and shattered person and family. But you know what? It wasn't just my heart that got shattered in that instant. It was my theology too. Because all of a sudden, I got left with all these questions. I've been a pastor for a long time now. I've been a Christian for a long time now. And I all of a sudden had this little mini crisis of theology going, God, how could you let that happen? God, where were you? God, I prayed for him every day. Why didn't you hear me? Why didn't you protect him? But you know, it was probably more difficult than even those questions. We're saying, God, your word says that you never abandon or leave us. So where were you? Where were you? 
when he was underwater drowning, where were you? Were you there? Were you watching? Were you there but unwilling to reach out and save him? And to me, that was a thousand times worse than just thinking maybe he was a God who just couldn't quite get there in time. And how could I call him a good father if he didn't reach out and save my son? And it took me time to work through those things, those thoughts and those emotions. And I couldn't just dismiss them with a, his ways are higher. Who knows when you face that stuff for real, you have to question, you have to grapple. So I had to make a decision because at that moment in time, I could not reconcile God's absolute truth with my circumstance. So I had to make a decision and I made a decision and said, God, I'm going to hold on to your absolute truths. You told me in your word specific promises that you are good that you never leave or forsake us, that you are a saviour. And I said, I'm going to hold on to those things, but I will wrestle with you every day until you help me reconcile those absolute truths with my circumstance. And that's what I did. And I read, I read everything I could get my hands on, trying to understand where is God in grief, where is God in devastating accidents like that. And I read his word and I prayed and I did all of these things to try and grapple and hold on to those truths. And God did answer me. God did come through. He did help me to understand. And as I did that, I realized that he wasn't, it wasn't God's will. And I can't tell you how many people told me that when that happened. It was God's will. He's in a better place. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want him there. And God did. He helped me understand And I knew that it wasn't his will. I also realized that God wasn't unwilling or unable to save him in that moment. What he was unwilling to do was take away our free will to choose. Because even when the consequences are horrendous or devastating, God will never do anything that takes away humankind's free will to choose. There was a series of very foolish decisions that were made in the lead up that caused the accident and my son's death was the consequence of that and I can't tell you how much I wish that he could have intervened that that would have been possible in that situation but I trust that when God doesn't intervene I trust it is because he is protecting something greater it is because he is protecting our free will because you see if God nullifies the consequence of every decision that we make he nullifies free will itself And without free will, there is no ability to have relationship with God. We become nothing but puppets. And we cannot have a relationship with God if we don't have free will to choose him. And God was protecting relationship. That's part of what what God means, I believe, when he says he'll never leave us or forsake us. It also means he will never do anything that undermines our ability or any other person's ability to actually have the free will to enter into relationship with him even when it means he has to allow for devastating things like that to take place. God can and he does bring good things out of negative situations like that, but he does not orchestrate those disasters. He salvages something from them because he loves and he wants to demonstrate his love because the Bible tells us that folly is the source of destruction, not God, not his wisdom. God is a source of life and love and blessing and peace. So in lieu of being able to intervene in every situation that happens in our life, in lieu of being able to shield us from the consequences of our own decisions and the decisions of people around us, God gave us wisdom to guide our free will. 
in the hope that we would choose wisdom every time we stand at that crossroads. And Proverbs 9 tells us that, that wisdom was made discoverable to the simple in the hope that we would freely choose his wisdom in every situation we face. You know, this is good news because it means that wisdom is available to us. It isn't hidden from us. It's not elusive. It's not something that belongs to the intellectuals of the world because wisdom is not intellectual aptitude. It's moral aptitude. It's the ability to choose right from wrong. And wisdom is accessible to all of us and it is relevant to every situation. Proverbs 1, 20 to 21 says, Wisdom cries out in the streets. In the square, she raises her voice. At the busiest corner, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. This passage is about the applicability of wisdom to all the different spheres in our society. When it says wisdom calls out in the streets, the streets was where relationships were formed. That is saying that God has wisdom to guide and govern your relationships, that they are peaceful, that they are harmonious, that you can flourish. When it says wisdom cries out in the squares, the squares are the marketplaces. This is saying that God has wisdom to govern the economic world, your workplace, your job, our society's economy, our global economy, so that people can survive and thrive without oppressing each other. Wisdom is also crying out at the city gates. The city gates is where politics and social debate took place. So this is saying wisdom is there to guide and govern our social debate, our political systems in the world towards decisions that uphold justice and righteousness for everybody. God's wisdom is applicable and available and calling out to you in every area of your life. And you know what I like the most about this is it means that we don't have to feel out of control. The more of us that decide we're going to make every decision based on God's wisdom, the more control we take back over what happens in our lives, what happens in the lives of people around us, what happens in our community and in our society if we choose wisdom because we've got it at our fingertips. Wisdom is his word written and spoken. If you want your life to be founded on wisdom, deepen your knowledge of God. Be in his word. Read his word. Be intentional about being discipled and discipling others because discipleship is nothing but learning to incorporate all that Jesus taught and modeled into your own life and set your compass to God's truth live by what you know Jesus Christ stood for righteousness and justice not how you feel the feelings aren't irrelevant but they were never designed to be our compass we have to rise above how we feel and grab hold of absolute truth and allow that to be our compass and if you're ever unsure when you're in a situation as trivial as it might seem or as big as it might seem and you're not sure which decision would reflect God's wisdom, I think there are two litmus tests that we can apply. The first one is love God and love your neighbour. Does the decision that you're about to make reflect the greatest commandment to love God and love others? Because you know what that does? It teaches us to be God and others focused and not self-focused. And being self-absorbed and self-consumed is one of the greatest sins and conditions of the human heart that leads to depravity and so that litmus test keeps us focused on others and less on self and the second one is the grace and truth test in John 1:17, it says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ grace and truth were not mutually exclusive in Christ it shouldn't be mutually exclusive in us 
And so in the decision that you're about to make, does it show grace at the same time as bringing truth? Does it bring truth but seasoned with grace? When they're divorced, we can create harm. We can lead people astray. We can endorse things that are not absolute truths. But if we bring truth without grace, we can also create relationship issues and cause people to turn away from us and turn away from God. Does it bring grace and truth? Proverbs 2.7 says, Wisdom is a shield for those who live with integrity to guard the paths of the righteous, to protect the ways of his pious one. And then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good way. See, wisdom is designed to protect you, to shield you, to allow you to discern what is good and right. The more you base your life on God's wisdom, the more you will innately and inherently understand what justice looks like and be able to outwork that in your community. Proverbs 8.22 says, I wisdom was with the Lord when he began his work long before he made anything else. Do you know what this tells us? Wisdom is not an abstract idea. It's not a philosophy. It's actually the word made flesh. Wisdom is Jesus Christ. The greatest gift God ever gave to us was embodied wisdom. The word made flesh. His life is the perfect example of what it looks like to outlive wisdom in everything that we do. It is how if we follow Christ's lead. That's what's going to give us that light that shines on our pathway and shows us which way to walk, shows us which steps to take in any situation we face. But you know what? Sometimes we might be listening to this and going, but I've already got all these things in my world that are already not going well. I've already got broken relationships. You know, what about that? How do I deal with that? You know, God's wisdom will also reconcile. It will restore. That's what the whole gospel was designed to do. That's what Jesus came to do, to reconcile, to restore all that sin damaged, all that was broken in the fall. Jesus came to make right again. And you know what? The wisest decision any of us could ever make is to choose Jesus, is to choose to base our life on him, is to choose to accept him, to invite him into our hearts, into our lives and say, Jesus, you know what? I'm a sinner. I can't do this. I can't rely on myself. I can't save myself. I need you. I need you to forgive me. I need you to leave me. I need you to be Lord over my life. I need to follow you. That is the wisest decision a human can ever make. And I don't want to leave this place today without giving every person here that opportunity. Now, many of you may have already made that decision, but if there's anyone here that hasn't, I want you to really think about making that first decision that is based on God's absolute truth of the fact that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Saviour. And it is Him who will reconcile everything in your world and your life, both for now and for eternity. And so I just want to be able to lead people in a prayer. We're not going to embarrass anybody or get anyone to come out the front. I just want us to say a prayer together. And if that's you, if you're sitting here going, I need to make that first decision. I need to be reconciled back to Jesus. I need to ask Him into my life and into my heart. I need to ask for His forgiveness today. I want you just to say this with sincerity, along with the rest of us as we pray together, and just ask Jesus to come into your heart. The Bible says that's all you have to do, is confess that you need Jesus, 
that you need to be forgiven for your sins and that you need him to be your Lord and Saviour. And with that simple confession, Jesus will come. Jesus will begin a relationship with you and lead you day by day into a deeper understanding of who he is, what his word says, and how he wants to live and, and be expressed through your life. So can we do that together? Can we say that prayer and just give anyone an opportunity? Be bold. And I said, we're not going to embarrass anybody. Just say it out of a conviction of your heart and believe that Jesus will meet you where you are. Thank you, Jesus. If you repeat after me, thank you, Jesus, that you are our Lord and Saviour. Today we recognise how much we need you, that we are sinners, that we have fallen short, we cannot save ourselves, and we need you. Jesus, come into our hearts, forgive us of our sin, and restore us to you. Give us wisdom guide our footsteps and lead us into a life with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you prayed that for the first time or if you prayed that because you recognised that you were away from God and were coming back, congratulations. That decision will shape every moment in your life that is yet to come. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring faith or a follower of Jesus, there is a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to northwestchurch.com.au. And thanks again for listening.